This is an amazing piece of engineering marvel. Over 2,000 years ago, the ancient Romans, they came up with a process that, that produced this metal um, that has, has high malleability and low melting point. And they were able then to take this metal and roll it up to create water pipes. And this innovation allowed a boom in the indoor plumbing. That's right, 2,000 years ago, the ancient Romans had water piped directly into their homes. Hot water, cold water, water for bathing, for cooking, for drinking, water for flushing the waste. This is a big deal. Those of you who've gone uh, backpacking, you know how much of a drag it is to go to the river, get water, bring it back to the, to the camp and, you know, for cooking, that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's, that's backpacking. That's supposed to be fun. Living off the land is supposed to be fun. But there are parts of the world right now where people have to hike miles every day to get fresh water, bring it back to their home, and might have to do it multiple times a day. So you can imagine how the Romans felt about this innovation. Man, it's wonderful. It's so good. It saves so much time, so so much effort. We love it. This is the height of civilization. Except for one thing. This metal, it's lead. Historians debate over how much lead poisoning contributed to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's a thing. You can, you can look that up. Okay, that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> no, what we're talking about today is that we human beings, we have a problem. And that is, is we, have, we human beings, we don't know what is ultimately good, but we insist on pretending that we do. That's who we are. And uh, before I keep going on this topic, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Welcome to Black Culture. We're, we're glad you're here. To the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto de aquí con nosotros. We are working our way through our sermon series called Live This Book. It is a big series. We're, we're working all the way to May of next year, and we're systematically progressing through the Bible. And the big idea of the series is that the Bible is a story with seven movements. God's plan for humanity, the humans rebel, God chooses a people, God's people rebel, Jesus the king, the empowered church, and God's mission accomplished. Now, we've been, we spent a few weeks in God's plan for humanity. We learned that the creator God of the universe is a personal relational God who's looking to connect with us. We, we learned that he created this physical world as his home, and then he created humans as his children to image him and for them to run this world. So all sounds great, but then the humans rebel. Today, we're going to look closely at this rebellion. We're going to talk about what exactly is human rebellion and what are the consequences of human rebellion. And to talk about this topic, we need to begin with the Garden of Eden. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Okay. <clears throat> now, Yahweh, when you see the word Lord in all caps in your English Bible, that marks God's personal name, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Hebrew word for garden is gone. It refers to an enclosed space with trees and food. It's, it's, a, it's a lush place of beauty and sustenance. The word, for, the, the, the word east, east in the ancient world, um, it symbolizes life because that's the direction of the sunrise. 
And, and Eden means luxuriance. It's, 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 it's a landscape that's marked by water and moisture. So, so the big idea here is this. The Garden of Eden is, is paradise. Right? It's, it's a place of, of abundance, the place of luxuriance, the place of joyful life. It's exuberant, it's celebratory. It's a place where God wants to live with his children, the human beings. It's a good place. Now, there are three different kinds of trees in the Garden of Eden. First, there's the first type is the all kinds of trees. Okay. Now, all kinds of trees, lots and lots of them, they are, well, they are beautiful and they are, they taste great and they're less filling. Right. Only certain people of a certain age get that one. Okay. The second type of tree, well, there's in the middle of the garden, there's the tree of life. And uh, the tree of life symbolizes a, a, a kind of a, a potency of life that is above what a human's got at creation. And, and frankly, we don't hear about the tree of life again until the very end of the story. So we can't talk about that today. That's because today we're focused on the human rebellion, which takes us to the third tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, <clears throat> good, tov. This word in, in Genesis refers to those things that cause life to prosper, that flourishes life. And evil then are things that damage or destroys life. Okay? The problem we have really is with this word, knowledge. You see, in English, we look at this word and we think, oh, this is about information. Abstract information we learn about what's good for life and what's not good for life. The problem is that in Hebrew, the word is da'at, and it comes from the verb yada, which doesn't mean abstract information. It means to know via experience. Chapter 4, verse 1, in Hebrew, is Adam yada, he knew his wife. The NIV translator went ahead and clarified for you, Adam made love to his wife Eve. Okay? To know is to know experientially, to know personally. Which means, in this verse, to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not to open up a book, an encyclopedia on what's good and what's not. It's not to download a whole bunch of information all of a sudden. No, 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 no. It's experiential knowledge. It's personal knowledge. It's, I know what is good and evil. I know what prospers life and what, what, what causes life to flourish, and I know what destroys and harms life, I decide what is good and what is evil. And the problem with that, we human beings, we don't have complete knowledge. We don't know what is ultimately good or evil. Have you ever heard of the law of unintended consequences? Right, the idea is when we do something, we have, we have things that pop up that we don't expect, right? And, and the thing is, we go ahead and do them anyway. We don't know what the consequences of something, but we go right ahead and do it. The Romans, they love indoor plumbing. They didn't know they were poisoning themselves. <laughs> 2,000 years later, we look at them and go, oh, those poor, ignorant Romans. Hey, let's not forget that just 40 years ago, we still had lead in our paint and in our gasoline. Yeah, don't laugh at them. Over 100 years ago, cars were brand new things. Automobiles were brand new things. They were selling into America. And guess what, what was one of the selling points? The cars are going to be really good for the environment. 
Not kidding you. Because back then, the city streets were covered with horse manure. They were dirty, they were stinky, they were causing you know, public health crisis. And so what they said was, these cars, these automobiles, they're going to be so awesome. They're going to co- make everything cling. It's going to be great for us, great for the environment. Yeah! How did that work out? 200 years from now, when people look back at us today, what are they going to say about the horrific mistakes that we're making? We don't know what is ultimately good, but we insist on pretending that we do. Which is why we shouldn't be the ones to decide what is good and evil. That rule does not belong to us. Jump down to Genesis 2, verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge good and evil. For when you eat it, you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God put the man in the garden. All right, we get to live together. This is going to be great. And, and, and he gave him a job, right? He says to work it and take care of it. Now, the word for take care of is shamar. It means to pay careful attention to something to ensure its well-being. Now, now three weeks ago, we, we learned that God created us humans as his children and empowered us to run his world. What does it mean to run his world? Well, here in Genesis 2, it clarifies for us. To run his world means to pay careful attention to his world and to ensure its well-being. The call for us humans to take care of the creation, that's a big topic. And Pastor Chris is going to spend a whole sermon on this topic next week. Okay, don't miss it. Catch that one. And that allows me to jump down to verse 16 and 17. God says to the man, yeah. Go ahead, eat it, what do you want? Go ahead. Uh, just one thing, don't eat from this one tree. Why not? Why, why not? Because you humans should not decide what is good for humanity, what is good for life, and what harms life. That's God's decision. That's God's prerogative. This is God's world. God has complete knowledge. He knows what is good and what is evil. And just like that, we are confronted with the human dilemma, right? We have the Garden of Eden right here. We have the Garden of Eden. We have life with God, a community living with God. We dream about paradise, right? We dream about our home, the place where we belong, where where we are loved and accepted and there's abundance and there's security. We dream about a place like that. But paradise comes at a cost. The master has a guard, has a ruler. And the ruler has a rule. You don't get to decide what is good or what harms life. I do. <coughs> so are you willing to pay the price to live in the garden? You see, that's the problem, right? That's the problem that humans have been struggling with all this time. They've been struggling with this issue, which is we humans want what God has to offer. We want abundance, we want security, we want love and goodness and grace, but what we don't want is God as God. And so the human says, we don't want to pay the price. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, Pastor Chris introduced us to the serpent last week. 
right? He says this, that serpent was an embodiment of a spiritual being named Satan, and he is the one leading a rebellion against God in the spiritual realm. And, and, and this war in the spiritual realm is really the backdrop to the entire biblical story that we are reading. And if you want to learn more about that, make sure you catch the sermon from last Sunday. Okay. What he talked about was that Satan, or the serpent, he was marked by lies. He's marked by deception. He is the master of lies. And, and today, then, we're going to focus on the specific tactics he uses and how the humans respond to him. Okay? So, first, the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay. Participation. Did God say that? No, not even close, right? God says you can eat whatever tree you want. There's only this one tree, right? So, so why does Satan do this? What is he doing? Right? The serpent is exaggerating the prohibition, right? You have this one rule in the Garden of Eden. Well, wow, man, the Garden of Eden is just full of rules, isn't it? Must be tough living there. All these rules everywhere. Man, it's really, really hard. Do you hear that a lot? In our culture, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. The Bible is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Following Jesus means you get restricted everywhere, right? You hear that, right? And when you hear that in your in culture, when you read it online, what you're hearing is the hiss of the serpent. Exaggerate the prohibition. Why? What does that accomplish? Let's find out. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, so the woman's response. This is what we need to be, we need to be pretty carefully, okay? Very carefully. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. That's, that's right, more or less. But then she said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Huh. What's the tree that's in the middle of the garden? Right? Let's go back. We just read it. We just read verse, uh, verse 9 earlier, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Right? Yeah. What's in the middle of the garden? There are two trees in the middle of the garden. Right? There's the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see what's going on with the woman? Do you see what's going on? The, 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 the serpent says, Man, there's a lot of rules here. Look at all those rules. And she's like, well, no, 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 no. But yeah, now she starts thinking about the rules. And what happens is that when you start thinking about what you can't do, it has a way of taking over your mind. Right? All the trees, all the trees that God's given as gift and grace, it's like, oh, I don't really see that anymore. All I see is that one tree in the middle of the garden, and the tree of life just disappears. It's gone from her thoughts. Right? And look at this line. You must not touch it, or you will die. Did God say that? No, God did not say that. So what's going on? She's so focused on rules, she starts to making, make up rules and ascribe them to God. You see her mindset. It's rules and rulemaking. And when you start in that mindset where all you see are restrictions, the next obvious question that comes to mind is, well, why these rules? Why are they making the rules? And that's where... The serpent goes. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what the serpent is doing. Let me exaggerate the prohibition. 
man, that's really tough living here in the Garden of Eden, all these rules everywhere, right? Get them thinking about the rules, get them making up rules, and then what happens? Well, you know, maybe the one making the rule doesn't want what's good for you. Maybe God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Maybe God's out to control you. Maybe God's out to limit you. And what you really should do is stop being a servant to him. And you need to, well, follow your own heart. You need to be all that you can be. You need to express yourself. You need to live your life. Stop following him. Be like God. You decide what is good and what is evil. You decide what harms and hurts human life. You decide. And so what happens next? The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good. Do you see that? God said, eat the tree, you'll die. It's bad for you. And the woman says, God, I respectfully disagree. I think the tree's good. I think the tree's good. In fact, I can come up with a, good, a few good reasons why it's good. See, it's, it's going to be, it looks pretty and also helps me gain wisdom. What's wrong with that? So what's happening? The woman is now deciding for herself what is good and what is not. She's deciding. Okay. She has no idea what's going to happen next. Not a clue. But she's going to go right ahead anyway. She's going to pretend that she does. And so she reaches out, grabs a fruit, and eats it. And that's the final step of this rebellion, right? It's basically saying to God, God, you, you don't decide what is good and evil. You don't decide what's good for life, what harms life. We don't want to rule, live in that world anymore. We live in a world where we decide what is good and what is evil. It's us. And uh, notice this little line here. This is really, really important here. Her husband, who was with her. Okay, it's not just a woman. The, the, the guy was there the whole time. Both of them were standing there listening to the serpent talk, and they're listening, and they're going, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, we want to decide for ourselves. Both of them were involved in human rebellion. So what happens? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they recognized they were naked, so they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, some people read this and go, well, were they blind? They couldn't see that they were naked? No, that'd be silly. No, no, no. That's not, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the idea of nakedness showed up for the very first time in their mind. Okay? The idea of nakedness showed up because for the first time, they had a, a thought, which is, I would love to be covered up right now. <laughs> okay? idea of covering showed up for the very first time. Why do we wear clothes? Because we don't want other people to see us. Okay, look, I'm like up here, you're all looking at me. I'm like, what, 80%, 90% covered up, right? Everything you see up here is what I want you to see, right? See, this is like my special Sunday preaching outfit. 
Um, this shirt right here, I mean, it's like, I don't wear this on, on dumb preaching Sundays. Okay, it's button shirts. I don't like button shirts. I only wear t-shirts, so I don't wear this. These are my nice slacks. I also only wear them when I preach on Sundays. And then the, the, the shoes. I used to wear like construction boots a lot when I walk around. And somebody told me, Charles, you cannot go up there wearing like wearing shoes like that. So I bought loafers. So that, that's what I have today. Everything you see up here is designed for your visual consumption. It's all for you. <laughs> okay. Now, it's not just visually, right? It's not just physically. We curate our online presence, Instagram account, Facebook account. You show people exactly what you want other people to see, and you hide what you don't want them to see. We hide. Why? Because I don't trust you. I mean, if we're living in paradise, living in a world where God is in charge, where every single one of us, we all agree with God. We let God decide what is good and what is evil. Right? And God looks at me. He's already made it clear what he thinks about me. He says, Charles, you're my son. You image me. I like you. I accept you. I like you the way you are. You're awesome. That means everybody else agrees with God. It's all good. I can walk around naked physically and emotionally. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where every single person, every individual decides for themselves what is good and what is evil. And that means... I have no idea what you think of me. And you have no idea what I think of you. Which means I have to hide. There are things about me that I do not tell, and I will never tell you. Never. Okay. So, the first result... The immediate result of human rebellion is loss of trust, loss of intimacy among people. It's the first thing. But more, man, 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 worse things keep coming. If you keep reading Genesis 3, you find out that relationship between men and women, they fall apart. That's huge. And then if you keep reading, you find out that our relationship with the created world falls apart. But that's next week. Pastor Kristen will talk about our relationship with the created world. Okay. One more thing in Genesis 3 I need to talk about. And that's death. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is the cost of human rebellion. Now, for many of us here, this is not a theoretical, theological point. For many of us who have lost loved ones, or who are in the process of losing loved ones, this is not theoretical. This hurts. This hits home. We wish to God that there's no death. That we wish to God that human rebellion never happened. Human rebellion hits hard. It hits home for so many of us. But there's something going on here about death that's important. And I need to get into that. So we go back to Genesis uh, 2. Um, when God talked about the tree of knowledge and evil, he said, you must not eat from the tree, for NIV has when you eat it from it. The, the, he, the literal Hebrew is, but in the day you eat of it. If you, if you have your ESV or RSV, the other, or some other major English translations, they will translate as in the day you eat of it, which I think is the right translation. What God basically says is, you're going to eat the tree, you're dead. 
Okay? That's what this passage is saying, which raises a question for us, right? Like, wait a minute. Did they die? I don't think they did. Right? So was God lying? Was the snake correct? Okay. Something interesting is happening here. Okay? The, the author of Genesis is having fun with us. The author of Genesis like, is, is introducing us to us right at the beginning of the story, this idea that there's something more than physical death. There is physical death, yes. There's physical death that's coming for us all. But there's another kind of death that's beyond the physical. Yeah. And, 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 as, as you, and the, the thing is, the author of Genesis doesn't explain it here. He doesn't like to explain things. He likes to show it to you, okay? What he's saying is, at the moment of human rebellion, human beings are changed in some critical way, something different, something has happened, something is now majorly wrong with the humans. And the author of Genesis is going to reveal it to us story by story. So if you go to Genesis chapter 4, what's the first story about humans? It's Cain murder Abel, murders Abel. Humans now kill each other. Murder is the logical outcome of human rebellion. Very simply, if I get to decide what is good and what harms human life, and you get to decide what is good and what harms human life. And if we disagree, and if we disagree strongly enough, then I will get, reach a point where I decide that it is good for human life for you to be dead. Logical outcome of human rebellion. I decide that you're, you should be dead, and that is good for me. Murder is the logical outflow of human rebellion. It gets worse from there. Genesis 6 tells us that Yahweh saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay, he's not talking about behavior. He's talking about the heart. And the problem with humanity is now is that something's wrong with us inside where, where things we want, our motivations, our desires, they're just off track. And God's like, this is crazy. Everybody is motivated by impure ideas and impure beliefs and impure thoughts and impure desires. And, and God's like, I need to do something to save humanity. I need to do something to save my creation. And that's actually the story of Noah. Genesis 11. We reach the culmination of what is wrong with the humans. And we have human beings dividing into language groups, ethnic groups. And now they can war against each other. They will fight against each other. And they will kill each other. And that's the world we live in today. Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, chapter by chapter, the author of Genesis reveals to us story by story the rot that is at the heart of humanity. And this idea that we human beings are broken inside out runs right through the rest of the story of the Bible. In 1 Kings, Verse 46, when they sin against you, God, for there's no one who does not sin. Everybody veers off track. Everybody goes against God. There's nobody left. Okay? It's not just the behavior. It's the heart. It's, it's that we're motivated by the wrong things. We're drawn to the wrong things. Look what Jeremiah says about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay, Our hearts they lie to other people and they lie to us and there's nothing we can do about it. Yikes. Okay, we live in a world that's totally different, right? Our world says, trust your heart. Follow your heart. 
This verse is so countercultural. This verse says, don't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart. Why? Because it lies. <laughs> it's not just the adults, folks. What about the kids? Well, Genesis 8, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Are children innocent? <laughs> the Bible says no. Oh, <laughs> okay, I don't know if I can say that out loud, right? Let me tell you a story. Um, I have two girls, they're both grown up now. But you know, when they're growing up, I mean like, okay, they're, 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 they're. so this one time, this, this my two-year-old, you know, she's, she's, she's there, and, and we told her, hey, this living room, you can go anywhere in this living room except the area of the, t- of the TV, because there's all these wires there, and we didn't get around to fully toddler-proofing our house. So one time I was sitting on the sofa, I was just reading a book, and out of the corner of my eye, I'm catching sight of my two-year-old, and she's looking at the TV. And you know how it is, right? I don't know if you, if you, if you like raise toddlers. They're not really good at hiding their intentions yet. <laughs> they can't hide their thoughts, right? So I'm looking, I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> she is looking and thinking about going over there. And so I see her make a move, and I put my book down. And she noticed that. And so she turns around and looks at me. And, and, and this is so cute. Okay, it's so cute. She says, Daddy, don't look at me. Don't look at me, Daddy. <laughs> it is so cute. Oh my gosh, it is so cute. It is also completely broken. She knows the rule. She wants to break it. She tells me not to look at her so she can break it without being caught. That's a two-year-old, folks. We're older now. We're not that different. We're just better at hiding it. Paul in Ephesians makes it clear. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, which is now at work in those who are disobedient. What is Paul talking about here? He's making a very simple point. When the humans rebelled, they died. And all of the children are born dead. We're all dead. We're all dead spiritually, cut off from God. That's the human condition. And, and what's worse, insult to injury, we're, we're born into an alliance with the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Paul's way of describing Satan. Yeah. You see, humans rebel because they thought, Declaration of Independence, hey, I don't have to follow God anymore. But the great irony is that instead of following God, the Father who loves us, we traded God for Satan who wants to use us. That's the great irony and the great tragedy. This is the Bible's diagnosis of what's wrong with our world. We are human beings, children, created to be God's children, to image God, to run God's world. We humans rebelled and we died spiritually, which means this world is run by a bunch of human beings, a bunch of spiritually dead, corrupted image bearers who don't know what is good, but we insist on pretending that we do. That's our world. 
And our world does not believe that at all. Our culture, the prevailing culture of North America, 21st century, says that we human beings are inherently good, right? What's the problem with our world? The problem with our world is actually hatred and prejudice and, and abuse and, and closed-minded religions that come along and that gets passed from one generation to another to another. And what we need to do is to become enlightened. We need to break for free from all that. If we become enlightened, then we are good. And we mean that literally, right? We, you are actually good. Who you are and whatever you desire, whatever you want to do, that's all good. That's why our culture says, follow your heart. Express yourself. Be all that you can be. Because if we can become enlightened, if we can get, if we stop being ignorant, if we can break away from the, the abuse and the, and, the, and the ignorance and the hatred and the prejudice of the past, together, we can end poverty. We can heal diseases. We can end warfare. We can build paradise on earth and we don't need God to do it. And my question for you, Do you believe that? Do you believe that God, do you believe that humans, we humans, can actually pull it off? That we can build paradise on earth? I'm telling you, this is one of the most foundational differences between our culture and those of us who follow Christ. You see, those of us who follow Christ, we don't believe there's a human solution. We don't believe that we can self-help our way out of this. Or we can just try a little harder or a little more education, a little bit tinkering around our behavior. Maybe we can like change some government policy or more science technology. No, the problem is that we're spiritually dead and we need a new life. Paul finishes this thought in Ephesians 2. He said, but because of his great love for us. Okay, let's just stop right there. Right there, you see that? That's everything right there. The whole thing begins with God's motivation. Who is God and what he see of us? He loves us, people. He loves us. You have to trust that for any of this to work. That's the starting point. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Christ does not offer a bunch of do's and don'ts. Christ does not offer self-help. Christ doesn't ask you to tinker around the edges with your life. Christ offers you a new life. And when you decide to follow Jesus, you are joined with the life of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And God brings you from death to life. You're now alive, folks. You're now alive. You are reconciled with the Father and the Holy Spirit comes in your life and is moving you toward becoming the person God created you to be so that you can now live in the world as God's sons and daughters to image him and to help him heal this world broken by rebellion. Our world says the humans can do it. The Bible says God will do it.
and we can come along for the ride. My question for you today, do you want to come along for the ride? I want to give us a few minutes to reflect on this. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your head, and I'm just going to talk to you for a little bit. And you can pray, you can talk to God, you can meditate on things I've been talking about. But I just want to talk because I'm, when I'm up here, I usually have my biblical theology hat on. And what I want to do is just talk to you as your pastor. I've, I've been coming to this church 25 years. I love this church. I love the people in this church. I love you guys. And I, I want so much. I want so much for you. I want you to experience the love of God. I want you to know the freedom that is found in the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. And I want you to have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that's transforming you, that's bringing you closer to who God created you to be. I want all of that. But you know what's getting in the way for us? It's hard for us. Because for so many of us, we're educated. We're pretty smart. We're competent. We know how to do things. And we have strong opinions about what's good for life and what's not. We know things. And what's really hard is to be able to say to God, yeah, you're God, you are God. You know what is truly good, and I don't. So today, and maybe that's your place, maybe you can just say a prayer that sounds something like this. God, I want to acknowledge that you know. You know what is truly good, and I just pretend. And I want to confess that I pretend a lot. What I want to do is acknowledge that you are God. You know what is truly good for life. And I want to follow you. And even when, I, when we disagree, I want, I want to talk to you and figure this out. I don't want to pretend anymore. Now, some of you here, you are, you're not yet a Christ follower. You're, you're checking things out. You're trying to figure out what this faith is all about. And today you learned a whole lot of things. Today you learned that following Jesus is not about tweaking your life. It's not about self-help or getting a little bit better, be a better person. It's not about following this rule or that rule. Now, what you learned is that following Jesus is about coming back to life. And so today, if you want to make that decision, I want to invite you, make that decision. Join with Jesus. Trust in God's power and regain a new life. If that's what you want to do right now, I'm going to pray a simple prayer and I just want you to follow, with, follow in, my, in your head. Okay, say it in your head with me. God in heaven, I don't know what's good for life. Only you do. I know deep down inside, my heart is broken. It wants the wrong things. It thinks the wrong way. I want a new life with you. So I place my faith 
in the power of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. I don't know how it works, but I want to join with him in the resurrection so that I have a brand new life connected with God. That's what I want, Father. And if you pray that prayer, I want to congratulate you. You are now spiritually alive. You have a new life in Christ. And for all of us, we pray the Father, to you belong glory and honor and praise because you alone know what, who, what is truly good for us and what is truly good for life. Acknowledge you as our God. And all God's people said, Amen.